Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to our latest episode of NucleCast. Uh, of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther. And today we have a very special guest, a uh, dear friend and colleague of mine, Jim Petrosky. Now, I'm sure at least on, on the engineering world, everybody seems to know Jim Petrosky. But for those of you who are not engineers, nuclear engineers in particular, uh, and you don't know Jim Petrosky, he is, of course, a Jim was a FA-52 in the Army, a nuclear officer. And then after retiring from the Army, he spent two decades at AFIT in the Nuclear Engineering Department, where he became one of the nation's leading engineers and engaged in a number of experiments, wrote lots of articles, uh, trained many, many, many Air Force officers and Navy officers and Army officers and civilians and lots of folks. And of course, today he is on the show uh, to talk about a couple of topics that are really sort of his specialty area, EMP, which uh, electromagnetic pulse, which is of course always a concern with the use of nuclear weapons. And then Jim and I have just finished up an article with a couple of our other colleagues, Robin, uh, Robin Hutchins and James Ragland, that will be coming out here pretty soon uh, that deals with the employment of low-yield nuclear weapons. And so we'll talk EMP and low-yield nuclear weapons. So with that, Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Adam. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm truly uh, uh, blessed to be here because I think this is a, an opportunity for me to spread my wings, if you will, out of the technical community and into the, into the other communities that matter uh, very much. And in the nuclear world, it's not just, uh, you know, it's just not the technology. It's all the applications that you and I've talked about so many times. And these are relevant issues in our time. So uh, it's a great opportunity for me. And I look forward to the discussion, uh, as well as further work that you and I'll be doing together. So one of the questions I always like to ask, you know, guests sort of early in the show to is sort of an icebreaker is, is, as you think back over for you, you know, your career has been about 40 years. It's been a long time, you know, get long in the tooth. You're, you've got your AARP membership, you know, we're looking at Social Security here pretty soon. So as you look back on this long career uh, and you think about sort of the, you know, that that thing that you did, that moment, that person you met, that, you know, that moment in your career that was the one you'll always remember. What was that? What was that memorable thing that's, you know, that you look back on 40 years hence and say, I'll remember that? Well, that's, that's a tough question, Adam, because there's so many of those instances depends on the focus area. For example, when I first joined into the military and I really didn't know, you know much of anything as a young 
you know, a young private actually uh, joining the National Guard and uh, hearing about our protection of nu- for, from nuclear weapons and our response because the Army had at that time artillery for delivering uh, nuclear weapons. And that was my first introduction to that area. And given that I was going to go to college for engineering physics, by the way, not nuclear engineering, and that'll huh. probably come up later on here because it's, <laughs> it, well, it's important because of the technologies that we're looking at are very broad and not just the nuclear package itself. But um, so so early on in my career, I you know became sensitized to to the warfare types that we're working at and never realized that 20 years later and 40 years later, I'd still be working this area. And it was uh, it, it was uh, at that time in the early 1980s, uh, this idea of uh, delivering nuclear weapons by artillery and you know, crossing the Foley Gap and and, uh, and making them useful in our uh, in our tactics, et cetera, um, was all new to me, completely new to me. And it's carried throughout. Uh, and in fact, I've seen it, as as you've said in a previous nuclear cast, you know, it's ebbed and flowed. We've moved forward. We've moved backward. And now we're facing what we think are new times. But I, I never see really new times. I just see new applications of the old times and it becomes useful. However, I'm going to I'm going to change that to a different piece that sort of t- attaches this uh, nuclear cast and a little bit of my rationale here. And that is. Um, I, and I've been listening to some of your other nuclear casts, and I re- recall from your talk with Curtis about his uh, his 9-11 experience. And I had a, a 9-11 experience, but one completely different, but is relevant to this discussion and some of the things that, that we are doing um, in the area of uh, making people aware of the use of nuclear weapons. And that was um, in 9-11, um, I was teaching at the Air Force Institute of Technology. I actually remember very vividly sitting in a classroom and a new class coming in, probably hopefully some of my students will will be listening to this and recall that I was teaching a class on mathematics for use for nuclear engineers. And I was so focused on the science and technology because that's what scientists and technologists do. And um, one of my students wasn't supposed to be looking at the internet, but he's looking at the internet and he says, I have a question for you or just something to highlight. It looks like some airplanes flew into the Twin Towers here in New York. It looks like a real major event. And I and my, you know, broad technical knowledge said, look, don't worry about that. That'll solve itself. We have important things to think about right now. (laughs) (laughs) And And so to me, though, that was an apocryphal minute for me. Because when I look back at that and realized how I became overly focused on one piece and not realizing the bigger picture and the value of understanding these things from a technology standpoint, but also from a, you know, from a worldwide strategy, policy, political science standpoint, um, it, uh, it made me realize how ignorant I was at the time. And it made me change my focus outside of the technology and encompassing the entire picture. So those are two apocryphal times that I, I can share with you. Yeah, it's been interesting. You know, as you, you mentioned, this moving from uh, being a technologist, a scientist, to sort of looking at the broader picture. And, you know, with the, the passing of Ash Carter, the, you know, unexpected passing of Ash Carter, he himself was, you know, a scientist, started his career as a scientist and then sort of moved into the policy and strategy realm and, 
in many respects, we see lots of folks sort of make this transition from designing, building, experimenting to thinking, you know, at this much larger level that you, you know, you so aptly describe. And, and that sort of brings me to my next question is, you know, in thinking, you know, an, an FA-52, an Army Functional Area 52 officer, you know, where you started, you know, during the, the height of the Cold War, and you had to think through the use of these battlefield nuclear weapons. And we're now in a time where Vladimir Putin, you know, we have the ongoing in, you know, invasion of, of the Ukraine, of Ukraine, and we see him threatening the use of nuclear weapons. And as you and I have discussed, we, we think, and many others, of course, and we're not alone, think that he'll use low-yield weapons, maybe one to ten. He won't use strategic nuclear weapons, but short, medium-range, low-yield nuclear weapons, maybe below a kiloton for, you know, destruction of discrete targets or for, you know, a demonstration strike. And so I thought today, you know, given your vast experience and, and knowledge of, of these sorts of topics, I thought we'd focus here. And so could you sort of open us up by giving a description for the listeners of, you know, low yield nuclear weapons, you know, what forms they might come in, you know, sort of your general thoughts on what you think the types of weapons that Vladimir Putin may seek to employ into what ends. Well, sure. And, um, you know, to open that discussion, you know, the, the starting point are some things that we can talk about, some things we can't in this forum. Um, but uh, also, uh, I, I would say the first first and foremost important piece is that, you know, a nuclear bomb isn't just a big bomb. It has effects that are, you know, substantially different from a conventional weapon, even of the same yield. So when we talk about weapons in terms of their yield, it's not just the yield, the amount of energy that's given out that makes the difference. Um, I would also say that the application of, you know, tactical nuclear weapons does, obviously, uh, we see that Putin sees it this way, and we at one time saw it this way, provide some military effect that is beneficial from, uh, from a military application. Um, a, a tactical nuclear weapon versus a strategic nuclear weapon, if you will, would more than likely be detonated in the atmosphere, obviously located near a target, uh, whereas strategic weapons may be detonated at very high altitudes. Uh, and the altitude of the nuclear weapon detonation itself makes a, different, a difference in the type of effects that you get. Um, and it's all because of the way that radiation um, which is a difficult subject to talk about. And so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to couch it in a way that, you know, everyone can sort of wrap their hands around it. Radiation travels differently through the atmosphere um, based upon the density of the atmosphere. So we think of space and space, the rate, there's nothing in the way of the radiation to travel and near the earth it is. And because of that, the nuclear detonation is different. So for tactical nuclear weapons, to get back to these tactical, what we would call low yield, and again, putting off this idea that yield 
is just a way of thinking about them, but they're still nuclear weapons and they have the nuclear effects. Uh, the blast dynamics are different from conventional weapons for an equal yield weapon. Uh, the radiation transport or basically how the radiation travels out is different. And depending on the location of the weapon, if it's on the ground versus above the ground, uh, makes a difference in the types of outputs, for example, fallout and the amount of fallout that comes about. Um, so, so the application of nuclear weapons in the military frame. So you look at military applications. You know, what is the objective of a, a, a nuclear weapon used in the military? It would be to be uh, something that would be used against forces to remove forces from an area you know, uh, and, and destroy equipment. And so uh, the military aspects of that from the dynamic blast, if you will, the, the, the blast and the thermal energy, the heat that's given off from a nuclear weapon that's unique to the weapon, uh, nuclear weapon versus uh, chemical, is a, is a uh, or, or conventional weapon, is uh, highly different. And so you get greater amount of that, that military effect, the burning, uh, the thermal energy, and the, radi the direct radiation energy that can kill soldiers or uh, troops in the open. And so it becomes more of a multiplier in terms of removing people and equipment from the region. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeter.org slash NucleCast. Now, if you compare, say, uh, the GBU-43, the the largest mm -hmm. conventional weapon in the U.S. arsenal, the MOAB, the mother of all bombs, as it's often called. That, if I recall correctly, that produces about 11 tons of, of yield. Mm -hmm. So 11, the equivalent of 11 tons of TNT for our yield. And then as we think about um, like low yield nuclear weapons, we're talking, you know, one to 10 kilotons. So instead of 11 tons, 1,000 tons or, yeah, you know, 10,000 tons. So much, much more powerful weapons than even yeah, the biggest conventional weapon. That's that's true. It's more powerful. But remember, it's not just the powerful part. And, and certainly, you know, it, it's good to step back and think maybe why nuclear versus conventional. And there's a, you know, again, from a military application, you think of it in terms of, of what you know, what must you do to deliver this weapon? What's the size of the weapon? And we'll take all the technology. I mean, there's there's tons of technology that goes into developing a nuclear weapon. That's why they weren't developed until you know the you know nineteen uh, you know nineteen thirty late nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. 
Um, so we, we started working that because of the technology and capability of, of working that side. So there's a whole other stream that we won't talk about here. But when we talk about just yield, we're just talking about energy output, but the energy is different. And sure. again, that's what, that's what makes the difference. So a Moab, even if you could, you know, again, deliver, you know, to take an airplane and put 10,000 pounds of TNT on it and lob it over top of some military force, um, the outputs of that weapon would be different because the chemical explosion occurs over a slower time period, has lower temperatures, and of course, does not have the radiation output that you would get from a nuclear weapon. And those are all key components to the nuclear weapon. I will caveat that with saying, though, what most people think of nuclear warfare, they, uh, and you know, we go back to movies, you and I come from the generation when, you know, when the, uh, what was the movie, um, the day after came out. Right, right. And, you know, what was you know, the first impact was the detonation of the weapon. And then everything that happened afterwards, we should, t we should talk a little bit about those secondary effects. But the, what happened afterwards is all the radioactive fallout and all the all the, the the problems with you know the radiation afterwards in a smaller detonation nuclear weapon, especially you know high enough that it doesn't reach the ground, the fallout is made to be minimalized, and so you get the military effect without some of these residual or what someone might call collateral effects. Yeah, and that's and so, you know it's it's an interesting that's the important difference. It's an interesting point because there's often. If, you know, we read, you know, here lately as Putin has made these, these you know, threats to use nuclear weapons, we've seen a lot of writing about the use of nuclear weapons. And much of, at least much of what I've read, tends to be quite incorrect in, in its description of, you know, what would happen if a nuclear weapon is used. And, you know, people have They've talked, they looked back to the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and said, you know, well, look at all that devastation. That's a, you know, nuclear weapons do that and far worse. And, and it, it, it leaves out a lot of the nuance of what a detonation could potentially actually do. So, for example, in the example of, of Hiroshima, you know, that weapon was detonated, I think, at about 1,400 meters, mm -hmm. and it was for a, about a 15-kiloton blast. That's well above, you know, the, the height of burst to where it's it's not going to create, uh, the, you know, the, the burst is not going to suck up ground debris and leave a bunch of fallout. So much of, I think, the, the numbers, about 80%, of the casualties and the devastation from that, you know, use was because the, the thermal energy caught some of the buildings on fire and then, you know, fire creates wind and then that wind saw that fire spread. And because Japan was largely made out of, you know, wood and paper, uh, you know, it, it just set a conflagration and, you know, you hear stories about, you know, the the river uh, being the water being so hot, it was killing folks. And, and, it, and so it was actually a fire that was started, which is why the U.S. was firebombing Japan to begin with, because of the material. And it wasn't that, and radi radiological effects were actually pretty minor. 
and overpressure, you know, there's that famous building that was, you know, directly that was ground zero that is still standing. And many people don't realize that the reason that that building is still standing at ground zero is because it was, uh, you know, a, a detonation at 1400 meters. So that overpressure that we see as we think about overpressure, thermal and radiation, the main effects didn't really accomplish that much. And I think some of that nuance, which you know better than anyone, uh, it, it's often left out of these public analyses that we see. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. Um, however, I, I want to go back a little bit because, you know, we we do understand and and, uh, and and there's two pieces of this. So let me start with the first one. We do understand how a, a, a lower yield nuclear weapon um, will affect areas. We did many, many tests and we did fairly, you know, low, low yield tests, uh, uh, higher yield tests. And we understand the application of that. And again, I go back to the military aspect, um, that there, there are truly military reasons why you would want to do this to, you know, again, troops in the open, destroying right. equipment. As you said, a high, you know, even a, uh, yield as far as Hiroshima and Nagasaki, truly devastating. I mean, destroying major parts of the city through those other secondary effects and the thermal energy being one of them, an effect that you would not get from a Moab. You wouldn't get the temperatures. You wouldn't get that kind of a, a second or, or blast effects. But I want to, I want, I want to hit the other piece of this because I'm a, you know, I'm a deterrence guy. And so I, I truly want to preserve peace. And the, the question is, when we start looking at these military aspects of the nuclear, is uh, is when you look at it as just another bomb, you take away from the real true deterrent aspect of it as being just another bomb. It does change the way in which people look at the, the warfare. And so when we look at, for example, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin threatening or blackmailing in my in my view he's blackmailing us saying well if this happens I'm going I'm, I'm going to detonate nuclear weapons that's a blackmail attack attack and our deterrent strategy must account for that in some fashion because it is a different type of weapon does it mean all-out nuclear holocaust well first of all our deterrent strategy must preclude that escalating to that level and Again, going back to my early times, we always had a counter to that in some fashion. We had our nuclear artillery that we had our, you know, our other uh, uh, many other ways in which to wage war that we would counteract any possibility of someone doing that. Um, that's that's got to be part of the calculus as we look at it. And so un, so so I agree with you. The understanding of what's going to happen or what would happen with a nuclear weapon and the different military characteristics uh, are really important and fundamental way in which we have to approach this. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you bring up a good point in that we juxtapose these two elements where nuclear weapons, regardless of how big they are, are, are different. Clearly, they're different. But, you know, for the Russians and then, you know, the Chinese, they're also looking at these low yield weapons and saying, well, you know, we can, we don't necessarily think that, you know, a low yield weapon is the same as a strategic nuclear weapon. And because their, their, their effects are far more discreet than a, you know, a three to 450 kiloton mm -hmm. um, SLBM, 
we think that these are potentially more usable. And so while it's important not to just say all nukes are the same, um, you know, but we also have to at the same time recognize that nukes and conventional are different. And that seems to be one of the more challenging aspects of the debate and discussion that's going on right now. Yeah, and, and I would also, as you bring out strategic, I would also say, you know, looking at strategic nuclear applications versus tactical nu nuclear applications are also fundamentally different. And it's hard to wrap your head around that without understanding all the rationale or you know, the physical aspects. Again, going back to the technology, you know, for example, high altitude nuclear effects providing a, a an, an electromagnetic pulse that would would reach to the ground, um, whereas uh, you know, low, low yield or, or localized nuclear weapons, although they may produce a, a localized electromagnetic pulse, are not as devastating, not far reaching, and certainly not as well formed as one would get as one, you know, in terms of its efficiency as a high altitude strategic weapon. And so we've got to take, we've got to parse these pieces out in our approach uh, to designing a best deterrent effect for our nuclear weapons arsenal as well as our response to any nuclear weapon application, be it by, you know, Russia or China or anyone else. Now, you mentioned EMP, and we haven't really talked about this yet. Could you sort of offer a, a general description of what is an EMP? What does it do? How is it produced? So that our listeners have a better sense of what EMP is. I mean, beyond the three courses that I developed at the graduate level for that? Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. But this one's in a couple of minutes for the for the average person who's not in your graduate program. No, and and, and I bring that up and, and, and actually you know, of all the challenges that I've had, and I first of all, I think that it's able you're able to understand this process, and I'll get to that in a second. But the tech all of these technology questions require some background to fully understand them. But it doesn't mean you have to have all the background to understand at least the, the initial parts. And so an electromagnetic pulse is nothing other than an electromagnetic wave, or in other words, uh, we'll talk an electric field wave, and it's a pulse. And it's um, similar to what your phone receives as a, a wave, electromagnetic wave that makes that, that you answer the phone and there's information on that or a radio wave that travels out. But it's it has a lot a larger electric field, and the electric field's what motivates or moves electrons inside of things. And so what ends up happening um, in an EMP produced by a nuclear weapon is through the process of radiation traveling through the atmosphere, it, it motivates electrons to move. And when those electrons move, they create an electric field that basically becomes a huge electric field pulse that hits your equipment. Similar to when you take your finger and you might be in a place like I am in Ohio and it gets dry out and you rub your foot in the carpet and you touch something, you get a spark. You've right. created an electric field and those electrons move. And when those electrons move, because you that electric field is there on your finger, with your finger between you and the metal, all along, nothing happens. But when you move close enough to the metal and the electric field is high enough, you get current flow. And it's that current flow that causes a spark and might sting a little bit on your finger. Well, the electromagnetic pulse is a very similar-ish effect. 
that is a wave that travels that causes the same kinds of things to build up or, uh, you know, the electric, uh, the electrons to move. And it's that spark or that movement of electrons that can destroy equipment. And it finds its way into things in various ways. Obviously, if you have a cell phone with an antenna, that antenna can pick it up. If you have an electric line like your telephone lines, the electromagnetic pulse can be collected on there and then travel to your house or whatever and, and, uh, and overcharge the system. And if it's not protected well um, or if it's in the wrong uh, position, it will cause damage. And it can cause damage from anything from just causing your TV to shut off or your cell phone to shut off to melting parts and components of it, depending on how uh, fierce it is. And that's all dependent on the size of the nuclear weapon and its location of, of detonation. And so it becomes a it becomes a strategic weapon in that it at high altitudes, especially, it can cover a very large area, a very vast area. Um, I often when I teach this to uh, uh, to non-scientist groups, I always tell them it's the difference between a tornado and a hurricane. A tornado can damage a, a small town or whatever. Um, and uh, it's a small localized event. Don't get right. me wrong. A tornado is horrible. I live in Ohio. It happens. I, I don't mean to you know, minimalize the death and destruction, but it's very localized. And the damage that you have in a tornado, uh, and, and we've lived through them here in Ohio, is that I can go to the next town and get gasoline. I can go to the next town and get water and food and everything else. But if a hurricane goes through all of Ohio and takes out all of the gas stations, all the electricity, all the communications. Now you have a different problem because I can't go next door and get something. I can't continue my way of life or, or in, from a military right. sense, you know, go go to other our places. And this is a huge then uh, threat to our to our country. Now we have done many things to mitigate in the same way we mitigate electromagnetic pulse from lightning or, you know, a, a, a direct strike from lightning. And so they're not the same. I don't want to mislead any of the audience here, but in the same way that we protect from that, we can protect from uh, the EMP. In fact, we're going to, I'm in the process in, uh, of writing a paper to talk about our distributed electronic, uh, electric, or, excuse me, our electrical grid um, to be able to withstand an EMP in such a way that we would, be able to survive as a country and continue to, to, to function as a country. And it's, by the way, the EMP phenomenon is not just the nuclear weapons. We've had solar mass eject or coronal mass ejections from the sun that have caused huge electromagnetic storms that have resulted in EMPs that have, you know, caused problems with our power grid and brought it down for periods of time. So we've learned from those. So it's, it's not that we can't do it. And I always like going back to this because people think EMP happens, we're all done, it's all over. I don't I don't subscribe to that. I think we have a lot of resilience as a country. Uh, we have a lot of smart people working this problem. And I do think we learn and progress. And as long as we learn and progress and, and cause our adversaries to have to recalculate, then we have a deterrent against that. And they have to recalculate and rework because we're driving their way of thinking instead of them driving ours. Now, in the last couple of minutes of the show, because we're getting near the end, uh, Peter Pry, who has written mm -hmm. extensively about the EMP threat, recently passed away. And so as you, of course, are one of the leading folks on, on this subject, 
And I guess one of the questions that I have is, is much of the discussion is, as you mentioned, is sort of a, you know, apocalyptic discussion of EMP. And I guess, could you maybe explain, you know, in our remaining time, how you see the actual threat if Russia or China, for example, were to detonate a, you know, an ICBM at high altitude above, you know, the United States? What, what might that look like? So, Again, uh, you have to think of, of uh, and I like the tornado hurricane uh, analogy for the, the answer to that. Um, the, first, the first piece of that answer would be that uh, an EMP strategically placed over the United States has the possibility, and I always use this possibility, and this is, this is the reason why I think it gets the attention it does, um, has the possibility of resulting in long-term damage to the electrical power grid. And we are a country that is strongly uh, uh, dependent upon our power grid because it's component that affects many, many different systems from communication to government, banking, our military, obviously. And so those, those that piece, the power grid, I think is probably the major piece of, of, of the infrastructure that becomes really important if it becomes uh, nationwide, if you will. Right. Um, and so it's it's probably the biggest uh, it's probably the, the one of the biggest vulnerabilities, and you so, see that in the congressional reports that have come out regarding our power grid and its uh, its survivability to electromagnetic pulse, and then it leaves us vulnerable for other types of attacks and and other types of chaos, et cetera. And I think that's where you see it unfold. Um, uh, now I I want to go back to what I said though. It has the possibility to do that, and that's the. That's the key piece. There are a lot of unknowns and unknownness, you know, the, the fact that something is unknown uh, makes people uncomfortable. Um, but also it, uh, it can be uh, valuable in that if someone tries to do something and they don't get the effect they want, now what? Because now you've left yourself open to this strategy that failed at, at the onset. And so both pieces of that unknownness actually become their own deterrent themselves. Um, not saying that we should be as strategically strong in our power grid and strategically uh, or remove all this capability of, uh, of any vulnerability to our, to our way of life. But it does provide an unknownness because, you know, my, my canonical question people always ask is, you know, will my phone work? Will my cell phone work after an EMP? It's my, my, always my favorite question. So I, I usually just bring it up at, just like I did here. I just bring it up on my own. Will your phone, cell phone work after an EMP? Uh, I, as an expert EMP, say maybe, maybe not. Depends. It depends on what? Well, if my cell phone's sitting in a metal box that can protect it, then my cell phone will work fine. But it's not, the, the question's not whether my cell phone will work afterwards. So my cell phone could work fine. I pull it out of a metal box and I turn it on. What value is my cell phone if I don't have a cell phone tower to connect to? What value is my cell phone if I can't charge it? So all these system of systems become the real threat right. from EMP is that you have systems of systems that, that become vulnerable. And so that's, that needs to be part of the calculus. But again, I'm a, I'm a deterrence person. So my question is, how do I take that vulnerability away? How do I make the, how do I make our adversaries? not even think of considering that, how do they become 
unsure that any kind of a strategic attack on our mainland using EMP, we'll go back to the tactical nuclear weapons, because it, it sort of follows a little differently with the tactical nuclear weapons. In the strategic side, if it doesn't provide the effect you want, you've now shown your hand, and you've also opened yourself to all these other things that are going to happen to you if you were to provide, you know, to take a nu uh, strategic nuclear attack. Um, so that's the issue with EMP that, that I always like to think about as well, because it, it's important to look at both ends of it. And um, unfortunately, going back to the, go ahead, well, Jim, well, I'll I was going to say the last word, go ahead. Weapon. Yeah, no, okay. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm a rookie at these. So maybe <laughs> uh, you're good. Maybe I, I like to talk a lot, but you go back to the tactical nuclear weapons. The difference in the tactical nuclear weapons is they, they are expected to be detonated in, a, in an area of the atmosphere where you don't build the EMP as, as, widespread. They sure. produce an EMP, but with the location where the EMP occurs, blast and thermal and everything else are much more dominant effects. And so you really don't see that happen. So it's off the table in those tactical nuclear weapons. So that that unknownness part does go away in those in those situations. So, you know, it, it depends on your military effect and, and your desire to have a sure and reliant out, outcome, which is, again, part of the deterrence strategy. And of course, we will leave our guests our listeners wanting more and uh, we'll make sure that we have you back. And next time we, we have this discussion, we'll pick up where we're now leaving off uh, and go into some more detail here. And so uh, I want to thank the listeners for, for joining us on Nuclecast. Of course, I want to thank Jim Petrosky for joining us. And as uh, Jim's new, uh, Venture, the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, NIDS, where the motto is Think Deterrence, where you can find them at www.thinkdeterrence.com. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Jim, and we will definitely look forward to bringing you back on the show in the future to pick up where we're now leaving off. Well, thank you, Adam, and I thank all you and all the people that are making Nuclear Cast happen. It's a real it's a real benefit to our country to have you guys doing this, and I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, and to the listeners, we'll see you next time on NucleCast. Well, welcome to Adam's Afterthoughts. We just did a great interview with Jim Petrosky. And, you know, we talked about low-yield nuclear weapons and weapons effects and the differences between conventional and nuclear and how we sort of need to think about them. And then, of course, we talked about EMP. Jim's one of the best uh, in the country when it comes to EMP. So it's always good to hear his thoughts. And, of course... The big takeaway on the EMP threat from Jim is, well, it depends. And we, we don't really know what the effects of a, you know, a, a 300 to 450 uh, half a megaton 
EMP burst over the United States. We don't exactly know what that might be. How extensive would the damage be? How would it propagate across the electric grid? There's a lot that we still don't know. So that was interesting. And as always, uh, make sure you listen to NucleCast and uh, our next episode because we always have great and exciting guests.